Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Don't bait us. We're not baiting you. We haven't said a word yet. Welcome to the Ben Jarosky <laughs> Show, everybody. Uh, the Ben Jarosky <laughs> Show for Tuesday. October 19th is just moments away. But before we do this, we need to thank our sponsors. Well, first off, Ben is back in Chicago. How's it going, buddy? How's it feel to be back? Feels good, man. I'm looking out the window. See the same old alley, same old. Wait a minute. Is the porta potty gone? Hold on. Is the. Oh, my Lord. For new listeners, there's a porta potty that's been in the back of uh, uh, Ben's neighbors uh, since, since the pandemic. <laughs> Breaking news. They got rid of the porta potty. Breaking news. Are you serious? Yeah, man. How can I joke about my beloved porta potty? Oh. It's gone. Wow. All right. They might have brought it over to our guest house. I I don't know where it is, but uh, we'll have to ask our guest uh, if it's at her house. But it's not in my alley. Oh, that's for sure. Well, Ben's back, and your porta pottyless Ben Jarofsky show for Tuesday, October 19th is brought to you by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what kind of cannabis to smoke, and so much more, including columns from our very own Ben Jarofsky. Check it out, Chicago Reader, ChicagoReader.com. And the Ben Jarofsky Show starts now. It is Tuesday, October 19th, and live from my apartment and his attic. Yes, he's back in the attic. This is the Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program... Maya Duke Masava. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Crisis City Tuesday, and here's why. Because it's Crisis City. That's why. I just got back into town. Got back late Sunday night after a three-week. We didn't miss a show, D. Very proud of that fact. We did not miss a show. We did all our bonuses. I was in that little apartment. The Airbnb overlooking another alley. <laughs> Only this one was in Los Angeles. I love alleys, man. The man loves alleys. Uh, and uh, did, did not miss the show. Back in the city. My porta potty's gone. It's good to be back. But I come home. Freaking crisis. Mayor Lori Lightfoot going toe-to-toe with Johnny Catanzara uh, from the Fraternal Order of Police. And uh, this one, I, I, I just wrote about this for the Chicago Reader, ladies and gentlemen. This this one just I, I I just don't get this one. I really don't get this one because this one, of course, is over uh, vax mandates uh, and the fraternal order of police. Johnny Catanzaro, the head of fraternal order of police, is like he drew the line. This is where this is the hill he's going to die on. Uh, there's a picture of him in the uh, Sun Times today delivering pizzas. Uh, to police officers at the downtown police headquarters who are defying the order uh, to turn in the information as to whether they've been vaccinated or not. They think this is an intrusion of their sacred liberties. And, and folks, I just don't get it. I don't understand 
I, I do not understand the ph- phenomenon of anti-vax in this country in general. I don't know why police officers of all people would be so resistant to the fa- to the vax. You would think they would want to protect themselves. You think they would want to protect their families. You know, you think that uh, they would all be about public safety because that's what they're sworn to uphold. And yet this is the line. Of and I, I say this, my next guess is uh, I'll wonder what her opinions about this stuff are but i say this knowing that there are instances where i would back the fraternal order of police in a showdown with mayor Lori lightfoot for instance on their contract you know the drag, i don't know how many years they were behind on the contract i would back them on that i appreciate the fact i say this uh many times that in 2009 the fraternal order of police stood up to mayor daly on the issue of the olympics coming to chicago without a con again the issue was a contract my hunch is that Mayor Daley uh, had his police spies spying on the Fraternal Order of Police because, this is a different world, uh, they defied him on that issue. But this one, I just don't get. I just don't, I don't understand it. I, the, the, the psyche, the mentality of the anti-vax movement, I don't know. And I, know, I have there's some people in my life, I'm not going to name them, don't want to embarrass them, uh, who are strongly anti-vax. And they, I get an earful from time to time from them, and I just walk away from it because I do not understand. Maybe it's just fear of the needle on some levels, fear of the needle. I kind of agree with Carl Anthony Towns, the center for the uh, uh, Minnesota Timberwolves, when asked about Kyrie Irving. He said, the man has a right not to get vaccinated, but I don't want to hear his bullshit reasons for not getting vaccinated. Please, just keep your reasons to yourself. So we're having this showdown right now. And I'll tell you this, it's really hard for me to be on Team Lightfoot in general these days for many different reasons. But in this particular reason with the Vax, it just seems like Lori Lightfoot is constantly sending out a mixed message when it comes uh, to COVID, mandates, orders, commands. From time to time, she's tough. She says, this is what we have to do to protect ourselves. And we're going to do this. And she's ordering us to do this because she's the mayor of the city of Chicago. And that's her responsibility. And then uh, she's at the Sky game on Sunday, not wearing a mask. She puts the picture out on her Twitter feed. She's proud of this. It's like she's proud of the fact that she's at the Sky game. Okay, I understand that. You're the mayor. You're joining the celebration for the the world champion Chicago Sky. Congratulations to the, the Sky. Why are you, why do you think it's appropriate that you as the mayor are maskless and everybody else around you has a mask on? Like, are you special somehow? COVID doesn't affect you because you're the mayor. Everybody else has to wear a mask. Everybody else has to get vaccinated. Everybody else has to fill in their information and give it to the city. You, you know, you're in the middle of a controversy. You know, you're in the middle of this heated showdown with the fraternal order of police, why, what makes you think it's appropriate for you to go massive? And you know what? I know I, I'm surrounded by Lori Lightfoot supporters. They adore her on the North side of Chicago where I live. So I know my neighbors are probably going to disagree with me. They always have an excuse for Lori Lightfoot, but I, I truly, the stand that Catanzara and the fraternal order of police take baffles me. I do not understand. I already said, why this is the issue they're drawing a line on. But Lori Lightfoot not wearing a mask at the Sky Game where everybody else, Jesse Jackson was there. He was wearing a mask. 
Chance the Rapper was there. He was wearing a mask. All of Chance's friends, they were there. They were wearing masks. All the other celebrities were there were wearing masks, except for Lori Lightfoot. The one person you really need to wear a mask because she's in this showdown with the fraternal order of the police, and she's not wearing a mask. And I got an earful of last night. There are a lot of people in my bowling league who are pro, well, they're not pro cops so much. Some of them are, but they're definitely anti lawyer left. Ben, what about the mayor not wearing a mask? So I don't know. Maybe she thinks that if she gets criticized on Fox, she'll get support among liberals in Chicago. And there's some truth to that. I just wrote about this in the reader. It's like that instinctive reaction I have when the right attacks Lori Lightfoot. I feel, I don't know, an an instinct to defend her a little bit, but this is ridiculous. So there we are, folks. Crisis City. I come back to town, Crisis City, and um, I don't know how the hell this one's going to resolve itself. Uh, I was uh, joking with our next guest that uh, by the time we do our next show, we'll probably be National Guards in the street, huh? Because the police aren't going to report uh, whether they've been vaccinated or not. So we'll see where this goes. This is uh, this is a showdown that I've never seen in my lifetime. In fact, our next guest knows a thing or two about police unions and the history of police unions. I don't know if she knows anything any in the history of Chicago. Has there ever been a, uh, a confrontation or a, a showdown like this between the police union and the mayor of the city of Chicago? I've lived through a fire strike. There was a fire department strike back in 1980, a long time ago. Mayor Jane Byrne, the firefighters, went on strike. But uh, the state law prohibits policemen from going on strike. And generally... The police buy, get what they want eventually in their contract negotiations. So there's a lot of grumbling as the, the city drags its uh, heels or delays things. But never seen anything quite like this. All right, we got a great show today, everybody. Yes. Maya Duke Masafa is joining us. My uh, old partner in crime uh, from the Chicago Reader, now an ace investigative journalist for Injustice Watch. Maya, welcome to the show. Good to be back. Good to see you again. Congratulations on uh, becoming a grandfather. Yes, I'm now a grandfather. So I'm more inclined to give you words of advice, Maya, which you are free to ignore. Because isn't that what grandfathers do? that before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was always giving my advice, which you was free to ignore. Uh, Maya... I, first things before we get uh, take the deep dive into your uh, latest story uh, for Injustice Watch. Maya used to be my partner in crime at, at The Reader, as you all know, and she, uh, I don't know, moved on. I, wouldn't, I don't know if I was going to say got promoted, but got a new gig. But we're still uh, partners at the hideout for First Tuesdays, and I just wanted to get that point across so everybody would know. We missed a couple. You were out of town, I believe, on your honeymoon, and I was out of town, by the way, congratulations uh, <laughs> on being married. Uh, and I was out of town uh, in California being a, gra- a new grandfather. But we will be back in December. Isn't that correct? Yeah, we've got a bunch of good and happy life occasions that have that have interfered with the first Tuesdays of our fall. But um, yeah, don't anybody think that we're not doing the show or whatever. We'll be back on in December. The show will still be at the hideout. Uh, we're planning a really good, uh, lineup and, uh, we got shows planned for the beginning of next year as well. And, um, now that it's getting cold, 
the shows will be back indoors at the hideout uh, in the venue space, but the venue is uh, for vaccinated patrons only. So you got to show your vaccination cards and that applies to the guests as well. They made Tim Evans go <laughs> jump through a bunch of hoops to prove that he was vaccinated when we had him on in the summer on the patio. So they're really not, uh, they're not kidding around with this at the hideout. So when you guys come out, uh, we hope to see uh, plenty of you in the audience, but make sure to bring your card and uh, yeah, otherwise get ready to be turned away. Yeah, they made, uh, I mean, they made my and myself uh, show our idea. It was kind of weird because I was like, my first instinct was, no, I'm the, I'm the host of this show. And I'm like, what difference would that make? You know, I still, I could still give somebody. Yeah. I'm nothing special. Uh, anyway, I know, uh, yeah, I, I just want to, I've talked about this on the show in the past and, uh, I'm hoping fingers crossed, uh, that the, the debate that, uh, both Carlos Ramirez Rosa, uh, and Raymond Lopez have agreed to do, uh, on this show, they said, "Yeah, I'll debate." They each one has said that they were happy to debate. I hope we can pull that off uh, for December. Uh, so that's um, I don't think there's any reason to keep that secret. Maya, um, we've been talking about doing this for a while on the show, and so I'm hoping to get that off. That would be a blast if we can get that debate. Talk about public safety issues. Talk about budget issues. Talk about the mayor, but mainly uh, public safety issues. Maya, in your um, your new uh, gig with Injustice Wash, I know you little reluctant to be as open about your opinions um but it's putting it mildly opinions when you've got the kind of news that i'm reporting yes and we'll get into that fascinating insights about how our system works uh judicial slating uh but i'm just curious i went on my rant i went on my rant about uh the showdown that's happening uh in the chicago in chicago right now uh, between uh, Catanzara, Johnny Catanzara, the head of the Fraternal Order Police, and Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Uh, when you look at this, do you have, how do I phrase this in a way that you could diplomatically answer it or go on one of your famous Maya riffs, either one? Hoping for more for the riff. Uh, but when you when you see this showdown, do you have a certain amount of sympathy for either player in this, Kent and Zara representing the Fraternal Order of Police, representing the police of Chicago, reluctant uh, to be uh, to get the vaccine or even report whether they've gotten the vaccine. And Mayor Lori Lightfoot, who's supposedly looking out for the best interests of Chicagoans. Do you feel like any sympathy for one side or the other or do you sort of generally have uh <laughs> a pox I, mean, I feel like, I feel like ba- a, a basic sympathy towards like a public health. And the, you know, keep, keep keeping people from continuing to get sick and dying. I mean, Dean Angelo just died of COVID last week, was it? And Catanzara himself is vaccinated. Like, I don't see why people who are pay, who are like on a taxpayer funded payroll should expect to be able to put the lives and health of the public at risk and continue to get paid through with public funds. I mean, it just doesn't, I mean, people, okay, you're entitled to not get vaccinated, I suppose, for whatever BS reasons one might have, or, you know, maybe some people have some legit uh, health uh, issues that prevent them from getting vaccinated. But 
basically nobody's entitled to continue to get a public salary in in it, you know as a as a condition of you know just you know nobody's entitled to have a continue having a job when somebody when their employer says that we have decided that it's our policy that people have to get vaccinated because the kind of work you do puts you at increased uh, contact with people and it, it this increases the risk of the spread of this deadly disease like you know i don't know you know i don't know if this is like a I, you know, I don't know if I'm making some kind of legal argument, but logically to me, it's just, uh, it's, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't, um, does it doesn't make any sense to me. And I mean, if you don't want to get vaccinated, but you know, that your, your boss essentially saying you have to, because you're in constant contact with people, then, you know, well, get a different job. Mm. The thing that's, the thing that's kind of like, ridiculous observing all this is that people want to continue having having this job and pick and choose which rules they you know abide by and it's kind of interesting that this issue has like brought the police department closer to striking than just about anything else i mean there hasn't been this kind of like threat of a work stoppage since they were trying to unionize in the 70s I think that's the last time the police department came to this close to like a full on just like, you know, everything short of a strike uh, based on my recollections from the reporting I did around the history of uh, the police department unionization um, in, in Chicago. So, yeah, it's a it's definitely a very bizarre situation um, and it definitely doesn't um, doesn't uh, communicate that that the several thousand people who are Chicago cops who are supposedly serving and protecting and doing this job out of a concern for public safety, you know, are that concerned with public safety? Um, the way that vaccination basically works is that people who are healthy get vaccinated to protect the people who can't be vaccinated. So it's, it's like a rejection of a responsibility and a duty to you know, acknowledge that we live communally and that we owe each other some 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 responsibility for 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 keeping everyone's health, uh, you know, and, and and safety protected. So, I don't know. I feel like it's uh, the mayor seems to be acting reasonably in requiring people to get vaccinated. I don't see any convincing arguments for why she's on the wrong side of things on this. No, I I don't think she's on the wrong side of uh, things on this. I uh, my 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 gripe with uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot on this particular issue at the moment, okay, as opposed to every other issue, I have gripes with her at the moment. But on this particular issue, is again the mixed message uh, that she sends out, and I just think it's really important uh, at this stage for leaders to be very consistent with whatever point they want to articulate to the public. And so this comes, we talked about this. I don't know, I probably talked about this with you. We talked about it a lot on the show. Governor Gavin Newsom faced a recall because in the, at the height of November of 2020, when uh, he was telling people they shouldn't get together, perhaps for Thanksgiving, he had, he met with uh, uh, lobbyists at a restaurant, upscale restaurant in California 
And that just ignited such a backlash. And he was without a mask and maskless in this restaurant. So I just think it's very important. If politicians are going to make demands to the public, they have to they have to follow the rules themselves. And so that my that's my main gripe. My only really gripe with Lori Lightfoot on this issue. I'm with you. I I um I struggle with in general, the resistance that people have to the vaccine. I've said that many times on this show. I don't understand it. Um, and uh, but I do believe that if you're a public servant looking out for public safety, as you said, you should take this basic step. Um, so that's that's where I stand on this one. All right, let's uh, move on uh, to. Uh, by the way, and before we do, I just urge everybody my idea history of uh, the police unions, not just in this country. She took a look at the, the deep dive, not just in the city of Chicago, but uh, nationwide. And I think I forget when that ran. That was in your uh, over the summer. We talked about it. When yeah, in June of 2020, the article is called "From Soldier to Worker." You can find it on the Reader website. Yes. Our beloved Chicago. She still loves the reader, ladies and gentlemen, even though she doesn't work there anymore. Every day she loves that reader. Oh, happy 50th anniversary to you, Maya. Um, So, all right, let's talk about uh, the latest story uh, that you, uh, your latest investigation for Injustice Watch. Uh, I got a big kick out of it because you took folks behind the scenes, so to speak, at slating sessions of the Cook County Democratic Party. You want to know how the system works. Uh, This has to do with judicial slating. Uh, The people... Uh, the judges who sit there and make the rules that affect our lives, they're actually creatures in some ways of the Democratic Party. Uh, I know a lot of Republicans and libertarian friends who just really get riled up. Uh, they fill my ear with all kind of invective about this. Uh, but Maya, you took the deep dive. Why don't you explain uh, how it works? Go ahead. Yeah. So last week, the Cook County Democratic Party uh, held two days of what they call pre-slating. So slating is a process that happens over the course of like a couple of days. It'll be in December this year. And it's the process by which the Democratic Party uh, committee people actually vote on who they're going to endorse in the next primary election. The Republican Party has its own slating process, too. I mean, I'm sure if you want to, you know, if, well, I don't know where you have a chance to win office as a Democrat, I don't somewhere. I don't know, in DuPage County or whatever, like somewhere somewhere out in the uh, somewhere out in the suburbs, you know, or even in suburban Cook, maybe there, there's there's a couple of Republicans, uh, Republican um county commissioners as well. So, I mean, they, the Republican party will have something similar. It's not just the democratic party thing, but in, if you're running for any elected office and you want the endorsement and support of the democratic party, and this isn't just for judges, but like the, the fascinating thing about this pre-slating event, which was an opportunity for all the candidates who want to be slated and who the party will vote on whether or not they will slate in December This event that happened on Thursday and Friday last week was like an opportunity for all the candidates to come up and kind of introduce themselves and kind of ask to be considered for slating. And even though it went pretty fast, there were a lot of candidates. uh, The way that Tony Preckwinkle explained it to me is like this is way this was like way more relaxed and gave them way more of a chance to actually hear people out than the slating itself does, which is just like everyone says is like extremely hectic and fast paced. And she said that back in the day, people used to show up to slating that nobody had ever seen before. You know, nobody, nobody said type people, you know, people who weren't even qualified to run for office, didn't have the money, didn't have, 
didn't have any idea of what it takes to, to, to run a successful campaign. So they started this pre-slating. I guess it was Joseph Berrios's idea, um, her predecessor as the head of the Democratic Party in Cook County. They started this pre-slating to, to kind of have more of a chance to meet people. And the interesting thing about this, one of the most interesting things about this is that there was no press coverage there, but this was a room full of like the most important Democratic Party officials like in the state. I mean, aside, I mean, J.B. Prisker was supposed to be there. The people who are already in office now, who are already um, in their elected positions, they still show up and kind of demonstrate that they want to be once again, you know, nominated and, and, and supported and endorsed by the party to, to make another run. I mean, Maria Pappas was the one that opened up the the, the slating event uh, on Thursday, the longtime Cook County treasurer. And she got up there and she said, you know, stop calling me and asking me if I'm going to run again. I'm going to run again after this cycle. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm like, I'm not quitting. So it's, you know, some of these people are people who are well known, but it was just interesting how um, sort of relaxed and open this whole thing was. And, no press were there to, to, to cover it or to use the opportunity to like chat with these people. And I guess um, the only people that didn't show up were uh, Tammy Duckworth and JB Pritzker. And it was because I guess they had other engagements or whatever, but um, Juliana Stratton, the Lieutenant governor showed up on JB Pritzker's behalf on Friday. And um, I guess Karen Yarbrough and somebody else spoke on behalf of Tammy, Tammy Duckworth, our senator. But basically, every everybody else, like a, everybody who's occupying any elected office, who's going to be up on the primary on the on the primary ballot in 2022, they were all there. And so my focus, uh, my colleague Chloe Hillies and I, um, uh, she's our intern at Injustice Watch right now. Um, we were mainly paying attention to uh, the bulk of the people coming up to court the Democratic Party's uh, support who were judicial candidates. So the vast majority of the people that are going to be on the ballot in the 2022 primary uh, and in the general election in the fall are going to be uh, people running for judge or uh, trying to be retained as judge. And so uh, there were um, more than 40 people who were there to expressed their interest in in running for judge as a Democrat in Cook County. And every single candidate got like maybe four, three, three to five minutes to speak at the podium and say a few things about themselves and introduce themselves. And then even though technically this was a chance for the gathered, you know, the, the committee people uh, who were gathered in the room, they were, you know, some of them were like some of the well-known people like, Tony Perkwinkle and Iris Martinez and um, some some other kind of uh, more prominent names were there, but also there were like you know just the ward committee men and the and township committee people um, who were all gathered in this room. They were they were theoretically going to be asking questions of these candidates, but really there were only four questions that were asked of every single candidate. And periodically there was a candidate that already had a lot of support from. Uh, from, uh, you know, high level party members. And so those people would like stand up and say a few words about why they're supporting them. But the four questions that every single candidate for judge and every single candidate was being asked in general were the following. Would they commit to putting their campaign staff through a sexual harassment training? Okay. 
Would they commit to financially supporting the party if they are slated? Uh, because it takes a lot of money to finance an election cycle and the party has to pay for mailers and call, you know, call outreach and door knocking and all this other campaign stuff, you know, ads, all of this stuff. So every candidate who who wants to run as a Democrat has to, like, make a commitment that they will financially support the election cycle. And though they didn't ask, they didn't say the number out on the open floor, Jacob Kaplan confirmed to me that it's $40,000. $40,000 is, is how much money every candidate who's running as a Democrat has to kick in. And that's just to the pot. That's just to like the overall party pot for the election cycle. That doesn't even, that doesn't even, that's just like the, that doesn't include their own campaign staff, you know, expenses or anything else they want to do for their own campaign. So um, this third question was whether they already had, oh, and by the way, about the, so the, our, our intern, Chloe, she asked me, she was like, well, what if somebody doesn't have the money? And so I was like, oh, that's an interesting question. And I went to, I went to ask Jacob, like, okay, so what happens if somebody, okay, they make the commitment, but they don't, they don't end up having the money. And he was like, I've never heard of that. <laughs> he said he'd never, ever heard of somebody not being able to come up with the money. Either they have the money saved up on their own or they, they fundraise for it. Yeah. But he said it's never happened that someone didn't have the money. Um, so then the third question was about whether they already had uh, somebody, a committee person endorsing them, either where they live or somewhere where they're known or, you know, where they work or whatever, where they're civically active. Um, so at that point, the, the person, the candidates would, um, you know, drop the names of the people who are endorsing them. And the last question was, would they still run if they weren't the slated candidate? So if the Democratic Party did not endorse them, would they essentially run against the party's endorsed candidate? And the vast majority of the people getting up there, you know, dutifully said they would not. But there were people that came up there, people who were trying to run for judge, either for the circuit court or they were already circuit court judges who are running for the appellate court. There were people that got up there that had a history of running against uh, the party's slated candidate. And they were grilled about that on the spot. They would be asked questions about it. You know, committee people would stand up and say, why are you here in 2008? You ran against our slated candidate and blah, 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 blah. So it was a real like a litmus test of party of, of you know, of, of loyalty to the party. And um, basically, I mean, yeah, it was an interesting it was an interesting there was there many of the people who are running for judge. We don't know exactly how many um, open seats there will be. So for those who don't know, the Circuit Court of Cook County has uh, elected judges the, and then they have associate judges who are selected by the elected judges. So this whole process does not concern associate judges at all. This concerns only elected judges and it's only elected judges who are elected for countywide seats rather than sub circuits. So just like we have, you know, um, you know, the, the, I guess what's an analogy there's, I think the water reclamation board has a similar thing. There's like countywide seats and then there's like districts within the County and you vote for the person that's representing the district that you live in or whatever the, the judges work the same way The the County is divided into sub circuits and the sub, if you want to run for a sub circuit judicial seat, it's also a different process. So this slating, this pre slating thing was just for people who are running countywide and there's somewhere between like 10 and 16 
seats that will be open for in the primary election because judges are retiring or resigning. So we don't know how many people exactly are going to be slated yet, but there's a lot of candidates who are interested and a lot of them are already very politically connected. So top lawyers from the clerks from the clerk of the circuit court's office, like Iris Martinez's people. There's some top lawyers from the county clerk's office, like Karen Yarbrough's people. There are some sitting judges who have been associate judges for like 20, 30 years who now want an elected seat because if you're an elected judge, you earn a little bit more money than an associate judge does. Um, and there's like other perks to it, I guess it's more prestigious. So there were some, there were quite a few people who already had a lot of pull who had a history of running and as a slated candidate, but maybe lost, but they were talking about all the money and work they put in for the other democratic candidates in the previous election cycle. And it was just a fascinating, um, it was a fascinating process to observe. Well, that, it, uh, Lots of questions I have from listening to that, uh, your recitation there, uh, Maya. And the first, I, the first point I want to make is the questions, going back to the questions they asked, the concerns of the party officials. And when, while you were talking, I was thinking back to our uh, highly uh, publicized, highly watched uh, show tr- uh, confirmation hearings for S- U.S. Supreme Court mm-hmm. at the Senate level. And we've lived through a lot of those in the last few years. Uh, and each party will try to raise political issues that they know will rile up their base. So, for instance, if it's a Republican-nominated Supreme Court candidate, the Democrats will be hammering hard at the issue of choice. And, of course, they'll be noncommittal on that issue. That's the most the basic one. that uh, And... and the reverse would be true, of course, if it was a Democratic candidate. Uh, Republicans were probably hammering hard at that as well. Affirmative action, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, but the que- none of the questions unless that you mentioned had to deal with uh, substantive issues. For instance, you know, like what's your attitude about bond or what's your attitude about criminal prosecution? With, I mean, this has been a huge... Show another showdown Lori Lightfoot's had. She picked a fight with Kim Fox. You and I haven't had a chance to talk about that one, uh, but she, we talked a lot about it the show. She picked a fight with Kim Fox on the issue of like how much evidence you have to have before uh, you you know prosecute somebody. So no judge was asked. You know none of these candidates were asked about things like that. No substantive issues. Very curious omission. Yeah, and judges judges when you're campaigning for judge, there are like kind of a lot of rules about what you're allowed to talk about and the, the issues you're allowed to like these kinds of things. Um, there may be, I'm not, in, this is part of what I'm going to be learning. This campaign cycle is like, what can they actually express their thoughts about? Um, because there's lots of things that I think um, campaign rules pr- prevent judges from actually even speaking on, but I still, you know, there was very little it, it, as they introduced every person Uh, there was like a, you know, they would say like a little short list, a short litany of like, if they're indoor, you know, how they're rated by the different bar associations, if they're seen as qualified, you know, where they've worked in the past, um, all that kind of thing. But, and then they would get up there and they would just say about how, you know, just basically again, recite their resume and say a few things. I mean, Maggie O'Keefe, who's one of the only, um, she's the committee person for the, 
40 of the word. Yeah. So she would, she would, she was one of the only people who was there in the audience listening, who would actually ask like her own questions periodically. And she would ask people what they were doing. If they didn't mention anything they did in the community besides like their work, she would make a point to ask them, okay, like, you know, what do you, what, who are you outside of your job? Like, how are you involved in the community? And then, you know, they would talk about their like involvement with the boys and girls club and whatever else, you know, whatever, whatever else they have to pad their resume. Um, but yeah, I think that, uh, the, 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 the emphasis on party loyalty and basically like getting people on the record about the sexual harassment issue, which like has been a huge problem for the democratic party in the last few years, obviously with all these scandals at, at very high levels of, of, uh, uh, at the highest levels of the democratic, uh, party leadership. So, you know, it's like, we want to get you on the record about being like a basically decent person, you know, that you're gonna, that you're gonna like train your staff, put, you know, put, put your staff through a training we provide <laughs> on sexual harassment. And then, you know, making sure that you're going to put your money when your mouth is literally, and that you're loyal. Yeah. Uh, and it's, there, there were, there were a couple of people who seem to have had a history of not being slated and they have continued to try to like run for office. And a couple of them became like quite, um, you know, quite frank about their, you know, they, they sort of were like apologizing for their, for their past, like transgressions against the party. And, you know, there was one woman who was like saying, yeah, I came to Ed Burke and he told me that I didn't, you know, that I, that I should, that I had no, that I didn't know anybody to become a judge. And she was like kind of giving a history about like why she, she, you know, was not connected, you know, what, what the barriers were to her becoming like a, uh, and a party insider to, to, to be slated in the first place and why she ran against their candidate in the past. But I think I, you know, it's, it, it definitely was not a process that made it seem that somebody's qualifications and their like intellectual and reasoning capacity were like the number one thing that the that the party is concerned with in terms of the composition of the judiciary. Absolutely. They That's want, exactly. They don't want any dirty scandals and they yeah. want their money and they want loyalty. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, now that last point you made, uh, the woman who talked about uh, Ed Burke uh, raises a very interesting question. Ed Burke, of course, the all powerful alderman of the 14th ward uh, used to play a very po uh, significant role in slating of judges. His wife, by the way, is a Supreme Court uh, justice. Let's pause and think about that, Ann Burke. I'd uh, love to point out all the conflicts of interest involving the Burks. Uh, but he used to have a mighty hand in, in this process. And then, of course, uh, he, um, <laughs> he, got, he himself got in trouble and is now facing federal indictment uh, for shaking down businesses, trying to force them to hire his property tax appeal uh, business. So... Uh, I think actually when that woman, I don't know the full substance of what her response was, mentions, so they say to her, well, what do you say about running against party slated candidate? To me, God forbid I was ever sitting there, I go, what? why wouldn't I? The person picking the slated candidate was Ed Burke, who's now facing federal indictment. I think it's a like shows well of me that I ran against the person Ed Burke 
endorse, or for that matter, Michael Joseph Madigan, who had a huge role uh, in slating judges uh, in the past because he was the state chairman of the Democratic Party. Yeah. Did anybody make that argument that there's something like worthwhile about having run against a party back candidate in the past when the party was run by Ed Burke and Michael Madigan? Well, so nobody was specifically bringing up Ed Burke, but interestingly enough, people were very vocal if they had the support of Aaron Ortiz, who's replaced Ed Burke as, as the committeeman of the 14th ward. So uh, people were, wow. yeah, definitely like there were a lot of younger, I will say that the, the, of the 40 people that we saw up there, it was an, an ex- incredibly diverse array of people. I think that actually there were more black women um, coming up, putting uh, themselves forward for for nomination than any other demographic group. Um, it was a lot of it skewed younger. There were lots of um, um, Latino candidates as well, uh, uh, several openly gay and LGBTQ candidates. So it was a very diverse array of people. Everybody who had Aaron Ortiz's backing, they were very vocal about it. Um, there were a couple of people who, when they were challenged about running against a slate of candidate in the past or just being asked like will you run against a slate of candidate if we don't slate you who were you know that they did kind of present this uh answer that was like well you know i am really dedicated to like becoming a judge and this is really important to me i'm really i'm like being supported in this by my community and so i would have to like confer with them but basically being wishy-washy about and saying that like maybe becoming a judge is like more important to them than becoming a judge backed by the democratic party and they'd be willing to go it alone. And there were a couple of people that also said the same kind of thing about their history of running against a slated candidate about saying that like, okay, like I basically, I wanted to still shoot my shot. This was something I really wanted. And I had a lot of community support and a lot of people who were, who like were dedicated to my campaign. And I felt like I owed it to them to to keep trying basically. Um, But you know, that those kinds of like that kind of reasoning was definitely not not like warmly received in the room. Definitely not. You know, um, and several of the people, uh, Tony Preckwinkle herself personally grilled them about their history of running against a slated candidate. So um, it just, you know, I think it's the, this. I had some conversations afterwards um, with folks who, you know, immediately their response was like, well, this just goes to show like how corrupt the Democratic Party is and how corrupt this whole system is, that this is what people who want to be judges have to do. But I will say that, like, I don't think that necessarily having, you know, we live in a world of like partisan elections and the Democratic Party rules the roost in Cook County. Like, that's just kind of like. You know, that's just kind of how it's been. That doesn't have to mean that the people who become judges are not qualified to be judges or that, you know, are not that we could have like high quality candidates who really know what they're doing, uh, be run, you know, be running for office and be getting elected. But I think that most of the party's energy is spent on like these loyalty litmus tests. And that is prioritized far and above like people's qualifications. And sometimes it happens that like a person is both very highly qualified and is very loyal to the party. And so, you know, okay, the, maybe the public like wins out and we get a, a judge on the bench who actually should be there. But I think that in what I observed and what I anticipate will also happen at slating, which I'm also looking forward to covering in December, is that this system is not 
really fine tuned to judge character and qualifications and uh, and, you know, legal reasoning or, you know, uh, weed out people who are, you know, going to be biased on the bench, who are going to be racist or, you know, exercise class prejudice. This is all set up to make sure that uh, loyalty is rewarded and that uh, the, the party basically gets its money to to pursue its agenda higher up the ballot, because that's actually what's really important. I mean, Jacob said to me that it, 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 the, a countywide election cycle is now up to like maybe a million dollars or something. So it takes a lot of money. And of course, most of that money is going to finance the campaigns of people uh, higher up the ballot. It's, you know, the collect everybody puts in $40,000, but it's not like the money is then distributed equally amongst the campaigns. Some campaigns require much more money than others. Yeah. So even you know, even though the bulk of the ballot and the bulk of the money is being brought on by judicial candidates, uh, the bulk of the attention is going to be on the, on the, on the, on the people higher up on the ballot. And I think that, you know, this is part of what we're doing at Injustice Watch is like, we're trying to bring more attention and kind of, um, just highlight what is happening on this, on this lower part of the ballot that nobody seems to be particularly interested in and it's not a very you know it's not a very sexy elected position to run for but these are the elected officials that all of us are guaranteed to come in contact with sooner or later yeah more than any other possible elected officials like all of us will be in front of a judge at one point or another in our lives whether it's for a parking ticket or a marriage or divorce um so it really matters who's on this bench and yeah what we witnessed last week was like a very interesting view into how people's qualifications are weighed. <laughs> and and I, you're absolutely right about that. And it's it's a very strange system we have. Uh, very important officials, judges, uh, are selected uh, in an election process by voters who don't know what they're voting on. And this is, I, I am as guilty as anyone else. Some elections are more informed than I am in other elections. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, the tendency, I must confess to you, uh, using you as my uh, confessor, is that if it's a really high-stake presidential election, I'm just so fired up. Like, I want Barack Obama to beat John McCain. I want Donald Trump to lose to Joe Biden. You know what I'm saying? And I'm like, I don't even care about judges. I'm just, you know. So I know how I act as a, a voter, and I'm, I don't think I'm that atypical. Uh, I I have a reaction though to this notion of loyalty litmus test with the party, and, and I'll tell I'll tell you what it is. Um, I think like in the abstract, like most reporters who come up in Chicago, you know, I've been fed this attitude that um, we we we're supposed to dedicate ourselves uh, to public servants, particularly judges, who are reformers. And there's this notion of reform that just was grilled. I'm speaking for myself, not for you, but it was grilled and put it baked into my brain at a very early age when I started writing in Chicago. And I see reporters have this instinct. So they'd be against this. And, and then I look at how the world works, Maya. And right now, we're t- you're talking about loyalty to the Democratic Party for a ju- judicial slating. Right now, the Republican Party... Your position in the Republican Party is defined by the amount of loyalty you have to Donald Trump. I just want people to think about that from everything you talk about judges, everything from 
governor to senator to Congress to state rep to state senate down the line. If you're not swearing allegiance to Donald Trump, Secretary of State in Georgia, they were ready to boot that dude out because he's he wouldn't say that Donald Trump had the election stolen from him. So, I mean, we have an adversarial system where there's two parties. We have a two party adversarial system. I don't know. I think it's unrealistic on, on one level to say that we should rid uh, the system of any kind of legal litmus or loyal lit, loyalty litmus test. Your response to that, Mike? Well, maybe it's unrealistic, but I don't understand why they can't go along with like more focus on qualifications. I mean, this is a system in which basically, if you don't have a demonstrated commitment of a relationship to the party you may still you may be a democrat i mean you may be like not you know you're not necessarily like some kind of snake in the grass you know fake fake democrat or you know hidden republican or whatever you just but it's but it's a system that rewards an ongoing relationship with the party over an ongoing relationship with the whatever the job is or the, the the profession or the career or the issue that you are running to be like a representative of. So I think that's where the problem is. And I mean, actually, speaking of loyalty to the party, I mean, there are two sitting aldermen right now who are trying to, as of last week, we confirmed Howard Brookins. I, I kind of broke the news on this. Um, Howard Brookins, long time 20, he's in his fifth term as alderman of the 21st Ward. Uh, he is now running for one of those uh, circuit court uh, judicial positions. And the way he was talking to me about it uh, last week was like kind of like laughing at the possibility that he wouldn't be slated. So he fully expects an endorsement from the party. Um, And I guess he probably has like a pretty good chance of getting on the bench because he also has like a recognizable name. So I'm sure that like, you know, lots of people would just check his name because they know who he is. Uh, And also, um, 29th Ward Alderman Chris Taliaferro, he is uh, also running for judge, but in a sub-circuit. So he wasn't at the slating event uh, because he's running in a sub-circuit and the process there is a little bit different. But, you know, these are people who have been aldermen for several terms. And the way Brookins put it to me is like, well, I never thought I'd die in office. But I mean, he's just this is this would just be a transition to another public office where, you know, you you make almost you make like tens of thousands of dollars more money as a judge than you do as an alder person. So um, what do you think about that? What do you think about the alderman making a move to, to the bench? Why, well, you know, I, I don't have any a great objection to it. I was just laughing, thinking about Howard Brookins uh, and uh, the contrast between an alderman and a judge and knowing a little bit about each job. I mean, I've never was a judge and never was an alderman, but in my humble opinion, aldermen, their hours are much worse. Uh, if you were to figure out the uh, by hour salary of each, a Cook County judge versus a Chicago alderman, the aldermen are far closer to a minimum wage because they spend many hours more than a judge. Like a judge is basically, uh, I don't even know if it's nine to five. It might be 10. To, it, it, it might be like 10 to three. You know what I'm saying? In terms of uh, your hours you actually spend working on the bench. But aldermen, 
not only do they have to go to meetings, city council meetings, legislative meetings, uh, meetings in their community, but they have night meetings. Every time there's a zoning issue, they're supposed to be present. Uh, every complaint, you know, who does a, a person turn to it? I have some, even though I make fun of them all the time, my, I have sympathy for Alderman. So I kind of view, I can understand where Howard Brookins is going. It's like, you know, I did my time. He I definitely t- sounds like he's seeing this as like a retirement option because even when he was speaking at the slating, at the pre-slating event last week, he was basically like, he was basically say, saying something to the effect of like, yeah, you know, I think it might take like a younger person to be like doing this job and like putting up with the constituents coming into my office. Like he basically sounded tired. Like, <laughs> can I ha- like basically he's asking he's asking the public, like, can I can I have an eighty thousand dollar raise to have an easier job, which then should really strike terror into the heart of anybody who cares about criminal justice system reform or or any kind of like issues about like making the courts a better fairer place if people are seeing it as a retirement option that's that's i don't know that's like that's very unsettling yeah uh, i assume there are judges who would relish a high profile heater case you know what they call a heater case uh like a high profile murder case like the the van dyke trial you know that like where the the courtroom would be packed with supporters of the defendant and people who want to see the defendant uh, thrown into jail and family members of like the deceased, et cetera. And, and of course the press, you know what I mean? Those really high profile, I'm sure there are judges who relish that moment in the spotlight, but I'm sure there's also probably a lot of judges like, Oh, I don't need this. I'm going to get out to that golf course. Uh, So your point's a good one. And uh, how much did judges make? By the way, you said eighty thousand more than an alderman. What's what's the salary? Uh, so circuit judges uh, make around, I think it's like around two hundred thousand, um, and associate judges make makes make somewhat less than that. And then the aldermen, I think, make around like maybe maybe one twenty. One twenty, yeah. Between one and one twenty, a hundred and a hundred thousand, a hundred twenty thousand. It varies because some aldermen haven't taken their raises. Others have. And so, uh, yeah, you're just like a 110, 120, something like that. More than us, Ben. <laughs> More than us is the answer. You know, it's funny. You, you, said, you say that. I was reminiscing. I had to do a story for the reader. I didn't have to. I mean, I wanted to. But it, for the reader's 50th anniversary. So I was reminiscing about my long, 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 long association with my beloved Chicago reader. I've been working at the reader longer than Maya's been alive. Let's just pause to think about that, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, and, um, and I talked about how in the 90s, I had like this attitude that I was making somewhere like the high 30s, 40,000, something like that. You know, I got Christmas bonuses, so I put it up. And I'm like, I'm making as much as a beginning school teacher. You know, I like I can't complain. My That was my meant. I put that in the story, too, but because that was where I was at mentally. You know what I mean? Like, who am I to complain? This is what a teacher makes. That's this is a good middle class salary and I'll be able to pay, pay my bills and go on a summer vacation, take my kids to a summer vacation and maybe even set up camp. Oh, my goodness. Things change in the journalism business and. As you know, Maya, we were uh, uh, comrades uh, in the union negotiating a contract. So, uh, yeah, uh, that 
judges make a lot more uh, than I have ever made and Alderman make a lot more than uh, uh, Maya has ever made. But I do believe that Alderman uh, earned their salary. I'm not quite sure about a lot of judges, uh, whether they earned their salary. Now let's get back to the issue of the $40,000 contribution. And I remember one libertarian in particular filling my ear back in the day it was $25,000. So 40,000 is, is it's up from 25. I was like 20 years ago. This guy was just filling my ear with, this is outrageous. You have to write about this, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, they're making me, they're making me, co- uh, commit to contributing, uh, all this money to the democratic party. And I'm like, I think it is pretty slimy on one level. Uh, Maya, you know what I mean? <laughs> you want to get slated? Give us the money. But at least I'm about to give it. At least they're open about it. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there's a certain level of openness and transparency here. They're like, this is what it's going to cost if you want. If you want our slating, so you're telling me that no candidate came before this body and said, absolutely not. I think this is inappropriate particularly for a city where so many people uh so many elected officials go to jail for violating campaign ethics laws etc and so forth uh nobody registered any complaints at all they just they all went along with it not a single that was the only question that uniformly elicited an affirmative answer from every single person that went up there some of them would answer the sexual harassment training question kind of strangely and say like, well, I don't really think I'm going to have a staff. So blah, blah, blah. So like, you know, that question just needs a yes answer, but some of them didn't manage to like, just clearly say yes. Like Maria Pappas actually was like, (laughs) Maria Pappas was like, well, I don't really have a campaign staff. It's just Pappas, (laughs) but she wouldn't, but she wouldn't say, yeah, I'll go through your, her sexual harassment training. Um, you know, the question about not running against the slated uh, candidate, that some people were a little bit mealy-mouthed about that. The question about their relationship with an existing, you know, existing relationship with uh, with a committee person. Some of them were, like, kind of fumbling on that. But to a T, every single one of them said they would commit to financially support, <laughs> you know, the party throughout the next election cycle. Well, you got to pay to play. You know, uh, <laughs> Blago is listening to this podcast right now. Why did I go to prison? Uh, you have well, to pay no, to play. No, I mean, I don't want to look. This isn't there's nothing illegal about this. I don't think you should conflate this with Blago. Like elections cost money. And it's yeah. I don't think it's that surprising that the party collects money from all its candidates to finance, like the cost of ads and mailers and canvassing and all this other stuff. That's, that's quite normal. What's interesting is that the bulk of the money collected will come from these judges, these people running for judge who most, who will have the low, the the most, the cheapest campaigns basically. So what's the, you, you, you get the sense of why these judicial slating is so important for these like power players, like Ed Burke, because this is where this is where the bulk of the money is coming from for the party. I, I hear you. And I'm I don't I didn't mean to go down this track, but since we're here, I'm gonna go down this track. Rob Bogoyevich, and I'm no fan of Rob Bogoyevich, particularly in his current incarnation as a MAGA supporter. She, the prophet's the number two MAGA supporter in the city, only John Catanzara. Uh, I think John Catanzara precedes him. But 
Rob Blagojevich, people were horrified. Oh, my God. He was essentially slating a candidate to fill Barack Obama's Senate seat. And he said, if you want to be, <laughs> this is a golden opportunity for me. If you want to get this seat, you have to commit to give me a certain number, a certain amount of uh, campaign don- donations, which is kind of the same principle at play here with judicial candidates. I'm just saying there's some overtone. With all the candidates. With all the candidates. With all the candidates. Absolutely. I sit corrected with all the candidates. Uh, but for judges, I know party slating is far more important than, let's say, uh, I don't know, uh, county clerk, for instance, uh, or another word. In other words, a high profile uh, uh, countywide position. Yeah, I mean, look, Lori Lightfoot did not need to be the slate of candidate of the Democratic Party. You know, like you, you at a certain level, you. If, and especially if you have enough money, if, if you have enough, you know, JB happened to be somebody who would have had enough money to run his own race, but he also was the slated Democratic candidate, you know, but like at a certain level of of the politics game, if you've got enough money, you can go it alone and you might even have a good chance at winning. But for judges who, like most people, don't have any clue about who they are, and we at Injustice Watch are trying to do something about that by publishing our judicial election guides. But basically, most people are going to look at this. They're going to use the Democratic Party slate. They're going to get the flyer and it's going to say Democratic Party endorses blah, 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 candidates. And people, you know, people, the primary voters will just vote for whoever the party's endorsing. So, you know, this, by the way, like the endorsement doesn't get you on the ballot. Starting in January, these guys are still all going to have to, like, go out there and get their petition signatures and, you know, go go through the process of getting on the ballot. But definitely... Uh, the party endorsement means a lot more to a person running for judge and their chances of winning than, you know, somebody running for governor or mayor of Chicago. All right. I'm going to close this uh, conversation by asking you this question that uh, popped into my mind immediately uh, when you started explaining uh, what this slating process is like by chance, by pure chance, Yesterday, I read an interview uh, in the New York Times with John Grisham, who uh, is one of the most successful novelists in the country. And he does courtroom. He calls them courtroom thrillers. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read a Grisham novel um, or seen one of his movies. I'm pretty much a John Grisham fan. And um, I'm a sucker for John Grisham. Let's just put it out there. Uh, Anyway, one of his uh, favorite topics, uh, one of his favorite plot uh, devices, etc. So first is a corrupt judge, and he's written several of his books in which there's a corrupt judge who's being paid off or controlled by some powerful interest or another that's hidden, uh, who is you know bending the law to take care of his patron. And there's some really innocent person who's paying a price for it. And there's a crusading young lawyer who is going to uh, reveal the plot. If you ever saw the Pelican Brief, that was Julia Roberts played that role. Anyway, uh, and so in the, uh, in the interview, Grisham said, based on his experience, he can't think of a worse way to select judges than elections because uh, they're the issue of finances because they need to raise money to run elections. They have to turn to people to get contributions and then they're owned to a degree. And 
as much as I love John Grisham novels, when I read that, I'm like, I don't know how it would be any different if it if they're appointed by politicians. And I just think of all Donald Trump's appointees to the Supreme Court as a classic example of the federal bench generally. Yes. Not just to the Supreme Court. And look, we have like a hybrid system in a way. I mean, there are like a third of the judiciary in Cook County is appointed. But to become to get on the shortlist, to even get a possibility of getting appointed. I mean, supposedly the the, the kind of quote unquote quality of candidates who, um, you know, it's like a more of a merit selection process. But you're not nobody. Nobody sent is getting on that list either. Yes. And there are plenty of associate judges in Cook County who have been associate judges for decades, who were people who have, you know, very complicated backgrounds before they became judges. But, you know, were in the right place at the right time, had the right friends, got on that short list and were selected to be associate judges. And now that those people are completely unaccountable to the public because the public doesn't even vote for them. Yeah. And they, their terms get refreshed every four years. Yeah. I believe there's no way of avoiding the fact, as you've uh, really illustrated in this conversation and your reporting, there's no way of getting away from the fact that, again, in a two-party system where it's either controlled by the Democrats or controlled by Republicans, for a lower-level or down-ballot position like judge, you have to have connections with one of the major parties. There's no way around it. No matter what, how we do it, merit which I have in quotes because just the concept of merit selection is so phony. You know what I mean? This notion like of a meritocracy where these, like they did a competition and who, who was the smartest judge uh, merit or uh, elected it's the party plays a role and that's uh, the reality. And it's, I, I will say this of all the things you said, there is progress in cook County. They are now demanding candidates, uh, pay attention to the issue of sexual harassment for years and years and years. My look the other way. And many of these candidates were sexually harassing people themselves. So everybody's got religion on that one. And so I'm trying not to be as cynical. That was one of the things since I've become a grandfather, I'm going to be less cynical. My, you're going to hold me to that. Um, <laughs> and uh, so uh, anyway, Maya, before I let you go, I have to say this one thing. One day, you know, you may figure this out. You came into the show back in the old days when I was at the Sun-Times and our, our, my beloved little bubble. And you were just filled with um, <laughs> like you were like riffing uh, off of Hillary Clinton and her interview with Lori Lightfoot. And we Dennis and I play that gag all the time. Or, great question, Madam Mayor. Great question. And I think of you all the time whenever a Clinton it's like now in my mind, Maya is permanently linked with Clinton. And I obsessively, wow. I know, you're like, oh, I, didn't, I didn't ask for that. And I am obsessively watching impeachment, urging all my guests to watch it, most of whom are like, oh, bad, why would I watch that? But that is uh, the Ryan Murphy uh, docudrama about Monica Lewinsky and uh, Bill Clinton. I don't know if you watched any of it, if you have any attention uh, to watching it. But it's kicking in the gear tonight. It'll another episode will drop, and finally Hillary Clinton will emerge as a character. 
You know, it's all the buildup to Hillary Clinton emerging. And the whole time Edie Falco was playing Hillary Clinton, I'm looking forward to this so much, Maya. And I'll be thinking of you. And good question, Madam Mayor. Good question. Well, I don't know what to say about that, Ben, but uh, I'm flattered that I occupy so much real estate in your mind right alongside the right Clintons. The Clintons are pretty big in there. Bill Clinton's always my. Have you watched Impeachment at all? No, but I. It's on my list. Well, I urge you to watch it. It. it um, it's a fascinating. I, I think it's a fascinating uh, a show, and I'm a big fan of Ryan Murphy. Anyway, the the producer of it. All right. Anyway, Maya, uh, if folks want to follow you. That's not the reader anymore. So tell them so how they- at the same place on Twitter. I'm still at, at M D at M D O U K M A S. My handle on Twitter is the same. I'm in injustice watch. Now everybody should also follow injustice watch on Twitter, sign up for our newsletter. It comes out every Friday. Uh, we only send it once a week and it's chock full of, um, all of our reporting and um, staff picks as well for the stuff that we're watching and listening to and reading. So uh, everyone should do that. And yeah, I look forward to first Tuesdays in December and uh, yeah, we'll probably might, might be coming on to talk about other uh, stuff related to the judiciary and uh, what we're doing at injustice watch before that. Absolutely. Probably bring you on every time you write a, a great crusading article uh, to talk about it because it's so much fun talking with you, Maya. All right. That's the great Maya Dukmasafa from Injustice Watch, my partner crime, still uh, at the hideout for first Tuesdays. And we'll be back uh, December 7th. Don't know exactly who the guest will be, uh, but I'm really hoping. I'll tell you what, Maria Pappas would be a blast to have. Uh, at first Tuesday, Maya, I, she's just one of the most colorful candidates, characters sure in Chicago politics. Oh, we should we need to heart. get her on. Yeah. Sure, Start sure pulling your it. strings. Yeah. Start making calls, Ben. All right. It's, look at that. I'm, I'm going to get on that phone right now uh, after the show. All right. Thank you, Maya, very much. And uh, Maya Tukmasova from Injustice Watch. D, before we head off uh, down the door, I just want to say one thing. Uh, there is, uh, I think I'm going to reach out to Joe Ferguson, the retired inspector general of the city of Chicago. His latest report, uh, just came out the other day. His, he's, uh, as he walks out the door, he's, uh, really, uh, opening up about, uh, mayor Lori Lightfoot and the city of Chicago and how corrupt the city is and how, uh, reluctant it is to change anything. But this last report by Joe Ferguson, I mean, you know, there used to be a, a column in the reader called News of the Weird. And so News of the Weird was just what it said. It's just like unbelievably weird news that like just showed how bizarre human beings can be. Uh, but one of the, the one of the, uh, the cases that Ferguson highlights of corruption in the city or wrongdoing in the city is an employee with the Department of Assets, Information and Services who, quote, carried a loaded semi-automatic firearm into O'Hare and tried to pass through security with the weapon in a carry-on backpack before boarding a flight to New York. The employee also had an empty badge wallet and a pair of handcuffs uh, in the backpack. I don't know what that employee was up to. It's one of the most bizarre things that I've read in a while. And, and it's just like presented, you know, in the Sun Times and the Tribune is like, well, this is what he discovered. I'm like, wow, there's so much more to that story. Uh, take care of Maya. There's so much more to that story that's not reported on there. 
Uh, anyway, Ferguson recommended the employee be fired and placed on a city's do not hire list. Instead, there was only a written reprimand, even though they pled guilty to a felony. They were sentenced to two years uh, probation on September 21st. Termination wasn't possible because city lawyers advised the Illinois Human Rights Act makes it, quote, illegal to take an adverse employment action against an employee who's committed a crime off duty unless the department can articulate a substantial relationship between the criminal offense and an employee's job title. Wow. Dude's trying to bring a gun and handcuffs under an airplane and there's no connection to the job. I, just think if you're like sharing a cubicle with that guy, you know, it's. Bizarre behavior. News of the weird every day in the Chicago Sun-Times. All right, D. I want to th- um, that's the end of today's show. I want to thank Maya Dukmasova doing a great job. Of course, I want to thank you. Back from San Diego. Welcome hey, welcome back to Chicago. Yes, welcome back to Chicago, both of us. Dennis, who very rarely uh, crosses the Illinois state line. Man, he all of a sudden he just took off, went to San Diego. Hey, now I've I crossed the state line. I've gone to Wisconsin, Indiana, <laughs> Missouri. All right, well, okay, but very rarely. Although probably Missouri more because it's right across, as everybody knows. Yeah, you, believe it or not, like I just wasn't big on planes in the last year. I don't know what it was. <laughs> I, I share it, Ricky, man. I share. It. I still not big on planes, but I don't know if I don't know where, uh, if we had the. Uh, a, a pilot who was apologizing for the masks. Did you get one of those pilots? That like a pilot? Hey, so, sorry, we're still going through this coronavirus thing. Oh, I wish I would have got that. We had a guy who's like, all right, now there's going to be a guy walking by with brochures if you want to sign up for more flights. Like, oh, what is this? <laughs> well, anyway, we were both we were both in California at the same time. <laughs> Very bizarre. What does that say about that? You know what it says? It says that we could do a podcast from absolutely anywhere in the universe. That's what it says. Uh, so anyway, uh, welcome back, Cotter. And I know you had a great time in San Diego. All right. Uh, that's it for today. Uh, I want to thank my Dumasif, as I said. And of course, I want to thank the man, the legend, the pride and joy of all in Lloyd, without whom the show would be possible. And as Lori Lightfoot, John Catanzara, and Maya Dumasif will tell you, back home at Alton, they call him Dr. D. Yourself a petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. I've seen a whole lot of catfish. I've seen a whole lot of catfish and turtles. Uh, no gators yet, though. Play the radio. Play the radio. I won't just turn the car around. I've seen a whole lot of catfish. I've seen a whole lot of catfish.